Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for in your wisdom giving us the great joy and responsibility of being co-laborers with you. We feel not up to the task. We sense our need, and we praise the Lord for that sense because we can find our strength alone in Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we go through this study, we would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit as you have promised to do, to lead us into all truth, to help us to understand these great and important themes and help us to be messengers of your last call to the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I, I wasn't here for the ones that have gone before, but I will let you know that, as Mark said, we're going to be going through an overview of this. We're not going to be going line by line. First, you ask this. But what we're going to be doing is giving you a big picture of the great controversy that you can have in your head and that you can adapt this lesson to your voice. Does that make sense? Now, let me be clear, these lessons are written in such a way that if you had no context whatsoever, you should be able to, it says, what does this text say? You look it up, and you have the little discussion. It should work on that basic, and that's fine. If that's all you have, try anyway. But it would be much more convincing and convicting for people if you yourself are acquainted with these themes and can draw out the deep, important lessons that the text has for us. Does that make sense? So what we're trying to do is not equip you, but better equip you. There's equipping here, but we want to give you the added edge that will make it nearly irresistible when they see the truth, okay? Now, you'll notice the first thing it starts with is who is God? And that's really the question at stake. People are wondering, how can there be a good God in such a bad world, okay? And so it goes to this particular passage, which is a very helpful one to know. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, he who does not know love does not know God, for God is what? Now, God is love is a huge, important thing. And the text right there in the, in the study guide will say it, that it does not, and this is a good thing to bring out, it does not merely say that God is loving or that God is lovely to behold from a distance. No, that he is himself love. Okay, He is the personage that is love. And what is love? Right? That's the very the next question. What does that mean to say that he is love? What is the nature of love? Well, love suffers long and is kind. This is, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, which we know as the love chapter. We oftentimes will hear this at weddings and things like this, right? Love suffers long and is kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Love does not seek. Now, without looking up, do you know what that, the next two blanks are? its own, right? Love is not selfish, it is selfless, right? This is a very important thing. So you put these two together, you say that God is love, and therefore, God is selfless. Now, if you wanted to keep in your back pocket, there's an entire um, fascinating study that you can do of just many examples, just very quick examples where there's always the combination of love and giving of oneself. The most quintessential example is John 3.16, right? For God so loved that he gave, right? Love, genuine love, always manifests in the giving of oneself for others. It's centered on others. Now, we're going to be getting to this point, and you could even lay this foundation early on. That principle that God is love and God is selfless, was what was questioned in heaven. 
Now, they don't know. Question in heaven, where are we going with this? But when you get there, you need to know that that was the root of the problem. Basically, and I'm telling you this in advance of where you'll take your students, right? But basically, there was a big political campaign in heaven. God and his law and his governance, built on his principle of love, was in opposition to Satan, or who at the time was Lucifer, the light bearer, right? But the big issue was whether God is truly love. Satan was up there saying, I offer you freedom, I offer you this. Have you noticed that all the songs are about him? All the rules are made by him? It's his place, his kingdom, him, 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 him. It's all about him up here. That's not selfless. That's not love. And already you're thinking, well, that is interesting, this song, you know. It wouldn't be hard for Satan to come up with some pretty intriguing arguments. And he'll say, look, I'm, I offer you true love. It's freedom from all of that. You be you. You look out for number one. You take care of you. He'd say real love is self-love, selfishness. And that's what the great controversy hinges on, selfless versus selfish. Now, you're setting that up in those first two questions. That's what you're setting up in those initial questions. Now, I think if you were to put a star and highlight or anything that you want to spend, if you want to spend a little extra time in your study, land it on question three. Okay? Questions number one and two take pretty much just the time that we've taken here. It really doesn't take long to establish that God is love and love is selfless. He's a God who would give himself for any of his creatures. Pretty simple. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter... Oh, I'm sorry, not chapter, I'm sorry, <laughs> not number three. I'm, I said that very wrong. And I, I'll, it's recorded, I'll just say it. If you want to skip one, it's number three. What you really want to spend your time on is number four. Okay? There's a whole parable that Jesus gives about the great controversy. If you haven't seen it before, let's look at it together. Let's take out our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 13. In your study of the great controversy, I would urge you, as the study guide here begins to do, and it, it kind of just mentions it the first and goes on, but I would be tempted to root this study in this parable. It's simple, it's easy to understand, yet it's incredibly deep, and it covers all the aspects that are at issue in the great controversy. I'm going to read it with you now to make sure you have the same picture in your head. We'll start with verse 24. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, pause right there. When it says while men slept, now we don't have to know who the men are, who the man is, who the seed is, the field, or anything like that. But we do know what sleep is, right? That means they're not consciously aware, right? This is going to be an important point to come back to when we say, how did sin come about? Did God create Satan? No, he didn't. But let's read it from the parable. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Whenever I give this presentation, I like to pause here for a moment and say, if you notice, the men who slept, and as we go through a read, we're going to find out that those are the workers of the owner, the employees, the servants of the field owner. They're the ones who are charged with caring for the field. 
They're going to be the reapers at the end. They cultivate the crop and all this kind of stuff. Now, who was the one who actually sowed the seed, though? The owner himself. He did not outsource that to his employees. He sowed the seed himself. He had, and what was the condition of the seed according to the parable? Good seed. In his, it's his field with his seed, which the Bible says plainly was good. And now if someone goes out, and this is why I'm not a, a great gardener, because I don't have the patience for it. I really should. God needs to work on my character. I'm just not there yet. But if you, you know, you take a little seed and you put it in a cup, and they do it at a craft time or something, you let it grow, you fertilize and water the thing, you set it up in the light, whatever. You come back the next day, and you know what you have? A, a, yeah, a cup of dirt. And the next day, it's still dirt. And the next day, it's still dirt. Now, if it just shot up overnight, I could be a gardener, right? But that doesn't happen. Now, the point that I'm making here is, was that? Weeds do that, okay, maybe. But even though, you know, they'll take their time a little bit, but they come up maybe faster. My point is that in this parable, clearly the sowing of the bad seed was done while men were not conscious of it, and it took a while for it to show up. So when they go out the next day to the field, they don't see anything. They just see dirt. And the next day, they, but when it sprouted and produced a crop, they started noticing something's off. You know, maybe it was, it was supposed to be in straight rows, but there's little scattered seedlings coming. Or maybe there's, the leaves look a little bit different. They're growing it different. Something's off. What's the deal here? But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So, now this is where it gets incredibly pertinent to our big picture study. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, pause right there, who do the servants talk to about this problem? The owner. Why? Right? It's his field. They're his employees. Why don't they go talk to the enemy? Not only do they not know who the enemy is, go deeper. They don't even know there is an enemy. All they know is good and bad, whatever, comes from this one guy. What do we call disasters? Acts of God, right? Every supernatural thing is a curse or blessing from God. Now watch this. They come to the owner of the field and say to him, Sir, notice they're respectful, they're kind, but they've got a question. Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? It's a pretty simple question. Your field, you're the sower, it's your seed. You said it was good, but we see that it's bad. Now notice this. There's a discrepancy between what the owner says and what the workers see. This is what atheists see. They say, wait, wait, you have all these great Christian claims. God is love. God is good. God is powerful. God is what? Yet look around. Good God. Cancer. I await your answer. Good God. Crime. Disease. Pestilence, destruction on every hand, war and rumors of war. Why? Why doesn't your God? Now watch this. This is the question that was being asked. Now notice the answer. I love the answer. He said to them, and he doesn't say, oh yeah, oops, <laughs> or my bad, where was my head? No. He says, an enemy has done this. How much responsibility does God take for the existence of evil? None. Now, I will say, as we go through this, he does take responsibility for the continuance of evil, but not for its original existence. 
But there's a reason for that. And we've got to study the parable. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? It's a logical question, right? I mean, we're kind of employed to tend your field, and there's bad seed all in it. Let's go to work and start harvesting right now, even before the crop is out and the fruit is produced. Let's just get it done. And what's the answer given? But he said, no. Now, does he have a chance to wipe out the seed early on? Yes, but there would be a problem with that. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Now, this is the thought that has to get in your head. In the parable, it is in the best interest of the wheat that the tares be allowed to grow for a while. Right? That's what the parable is saying. It's, in the, it's because of his care for the wheat that he allows the tares to grow. Mm. Now, is it forever? No. There is a time coming. Let both, he says, grow together until what point? The harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first go gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, we're, I'm going to give you a little thought that's going to germinate a long way past the study. But notice, it doesn't say go burn them. It says bind them together for a burn. This is, an, this is a reference to the millennium. They're gathered together at the graves, in the graves when Jesus comes, to face a judgment at the end of the millennium. That's when the ultimate destruction of the lake of fire will be, right? But gather the wheat directly into my barn. So there's a separation. Now, common sense. And I would appeal to you to appeal to them to use common sense. Just read the parable as it stands. Why would he tell the people not to gather the harvest early on, but later he's going to entrust those same people, then he's going to say to the reapers, go and gather What's the difference between the time of harvest and the time of sprouting up? Yeah, you can see the difference. If they go in early on, they're going to make a hash of the whole thing. It's not actually going to solve the problem. It's actually going to make it worse. But if you wait to the harvest, apparently there will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And the reapers in God's field can there distinguish and say, you're coming with us, you're going there. Yes, ma'am. I've always read this parable with thoughts of it pertaining to earth. Yes. Now I'm reading it, and I'm wondering if it pertains to the whole great controversy from the time... I certainly hope it pertains to the great controversy, yes, because that's the purpose of our study. Yeah, that just hit me, because I, I never thought of it that way. I always yeah. Now, let me be clear. There are clearly earthly applications. This applies to the church as well. Mrs. White makes most of her application almost exclusively on the application of the church. But Jesus Christ explains this parable. In fact, the parable is basically done. That's it. Look at verse 31. Another parable he put forth. He just moves on. But clearly they're like, man, he just said something deep. If you look at Matthew 13, it's all parables. Parable, parable, parable. Why do you teach him parable? Parable, parable, parable. But the one that stuck in their mind, and I, in the study, I would take my time on this parable. Because they had to have this picture in their head before they move on. Okay? Yes, sir? Very quickly. So the ripe wheat survives because it's ready to be harvested, and it will continue after the harvest, but the green wheat rots if you harvest it now. It's useless. Well, that's a great inference, but it's not explicitly in the text. No, but I mean, if, he can under, if he's ever grown any grain or he's a farmer, now I can understand after I've socialized with him and found his background. Okay. 
All right, go with that. But what I'm telling you is that do your best to only take the lessons that are explicitly said in the text. You see what I'm saying? Now, let's go to Jesus' own explanation of this. Yes, ma'am. Quickly ask, uh, what did you say, ask your student to consider logically what? You know, you're uh, I don't remember exactly which point, but hopefully all of it with logic. Um, I'm trying to get out of my, my vocabulary, let's think about this logically, yeah. because our brains are built to think logically. You don't think any other way. Exactly. So what I would encourage you to do is just walk through this step by step with them. And at each point when he says, for instance, no, let both grow together, and he says, why? Because of his concern for the wheat. Let them just see that it's right there in the text. Let them come to it with their minds. Read together with them. Okay? Now, verse 36. Jesus interprets his own parable. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the, parables of the, the parable of the tares of the field. So one parable they knew was uh, deeper than the others, maybe, or had a particular significance. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Well, that's, of course, Jesus' own moniker for himself. That's me. And if you have an extended study, remember what kind of condition was the seed? Good, good, good. And now notice, he who sows the seed is the son of man. The field is the word world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. When Jesus Christ created the field, which is this world, in what condition did he create it? That's exactly the word that Genesis uses. Day after day, and he saw that it was good, good. And when he made mankind, at the end of day six, he looks back on all that he had made and says, behold, it was very good. How much bad was in there? None. He only sowed good seed when he made this world. Okay? Let the text speak for itself. Now, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are whom? I wouldn't necessarily bring this point out because that's going to be deep enough for them right there. Just this one parable picture. But for the extra credit students in the room, who are the ones asking the questions? Come on, friends, in the parable. Let the Bible, the servants of the owners who wanted to go and gather them up, right? The angels. Is it possible that even angels have questions about the existence and continuance of evil? Who were the men who were sleeping when it all began? The angels. Now, that doesn't mean they were tuned out and dumb or anything like that, but how did it get started? With subtlety and sophistry, right? Of course, Christ saw it, but they didn't, which is a big framework of the great controversy. I'm saying the Bible's deep, brother. Good stuff. Now, if I were giving this presentation, you want to start with the idea that God is love and God is selfless, that's great, and then go to this parable. Because that's going to tap on the question that most people are asking. How can there be a good God in a bad world, and why hasn't he done something about it? Now, what I'd like to do next, and I think that the, uh, uh, I would skip, to, I'm not skip, if you want to, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not saying skip, but I'm trying to give you the main pillar points, right? The main ideas. What you want to do next is once you establish the Matthew 13 parable um, and that picture of the origin of evil through the parable language, now what we're going to do is identify the enemy. Who is this devil? Where did he come from? 
what were the original item issues at stake, okay? And for that, of course, and you'll notice that they're all throughout here, uh, you're basically there's three different places that talk about the origin and fall of Lucifer and his rebellion, okay? One is going to be Isaiah 14. The next one, and of course, we'll get the verses specific, but it usually starts in verse 12. I would urge you to even start at verse 14. Just, we'll see why in a minute. It's just simpler, okay? Ezekiel, chapter 28. That also starts around verse 12, but we'll get there. And of course, Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 through, I think it's 13, 12 or 13. I think it's through 12. 7 through 12. Now, we usually focus on only Revelation 7 through 9, I mean 12 verses 7 through 9, but before we get to these texts, I want to put a picture in your head so you know where to lead the people, okay? Go with me to Revelation 12, which is where, you know, questions 5 and 6 go anyway, okay? Go to Revelation chapter 12, and I want to show you something fascinating. If we had, I don't know, six, seven more hours, we could really do this justice, <laughs> But for right now, I'm just going to hit the highlights for you, and I would urge you, if you want to, uh, you can go to Audioverse and hear the whole thing. Uh, the Restoration series that I just gave out at Loma Linda um, was, has a good uh, version of this on it. It's the most up-to-date version, okay? But in Revelation chapter 12, I want to highlight that there are four distinct steps in the fall and destruction of Satan. Four distinct steps. They're outlined in sequence in Revelation 12, starting with verse 7. Okay? Number one, and war broke out where? In heaven. Now, one of the things I like to highlight is, that, and this might be a little bit deeper, but war does not mean like bombs and guns and smart bombs and drones or whatever, or whatever we fight with today. The war, the word for war there in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 7, is polemos, which is where we get our English equivalent, polemic, which is an argument. It's a verbal battle. It's a war of words, not a war of weapons. Now, Ms. White does say it was a real war. There were clearly two sides. There were enemies and there were pros and cons, right? But it's not like there were angel bodies strewn across the streets of gold and pools of blood. It wasn't that. It was a war of loyalty. It was a political campaign, if you will, right? Where the real battle was issues and, and, and governance, the war, a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought. I would urge you, don't go down the... Let me stop right here and explain who Michael is. That's going to take your time. Now, you can come back to that at some other point, but tell them, we're going to stay with the big picture. We'll get into the details as we go along. But start with the broad picture and then fill in the spaces. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's just say we know where we're talking about is heaven. We know what we're talking about is a war. And who are we talking about? Michael and his angels fought with a dragon and his angels. Now this is also a very handy point because you're just early on in the study and your series of studies. But this is a great point to see how the Bible interprets itself. We could say, oh, I think the dragon is, you know, North Korea. <laughs> I think it's Barack Obama, people will say. Come on. The Bible tells us exactly who, how this is. Let the Bible be its own interpreter. This is a great time to show them how the Bible interprets itself. It says, verse 8, but they, that is the dragon and his angels, did not prevail. People may not know what the word prevail is. So what are we going to say? They did not win. Thank you. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Okay. Now this lays the foundation. 
when they lost the war in heaven, Satan and his angels were not blotted out of existence. They were simply cast out of heaven. We're going to see. Why didn't he just squash him right then and there? Well, we'll come to that. But let's finish reading the verses 7 through 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So there's no ambiguity in Revelation 12 who the dragon is specifically referring to. This is the devil himself, right? Who deceives the whole world. That will be an important later. How does he get his work to go forward? He doesn't just come up to God and say, I challenge you to a fight. Put him up. Because he'd lose, right? Squish. Great controversy. The not so great controversy. (laughs) But how does he work? Through what method? Friends, there, Satan has only, he only has two tools and only one of them works. He has persecution, but every time he tries to squish out the Christian race, I mean the Christian faith, what happens? Yeah, it grows, right? The blood of the martyrs is seed. Persecution only hardens the church and their fidelity makes them more faithful. Basically, he just wants to get, you know, blow off steam when he gets to persecution. His real only effective weapon is deception. That's how he works. And that's how he planted those seeds, through deception. And of course, the essence of deception is you don't know you're being deceived. As soon as you say, I've been deceived, no, you're not. While men slept, an enemy came and sowed seeds among them, right? Sowed tares among the wheat. Anyway, we continue. Who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So step number one is found in Revelation 7 through 9, and that's with Satan cast out of the courts of heaven. He was physically removed. He lost his job. He lost his place. They were removed from the courts. Are we good? Number two. And again, you don't necessarily go through this point at your study, but you need to have this in your head at this point in the study to know where you're going next. Does that make sense? Okay, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come, for for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now often you might look at that and say, Well, that's just repeating what we just saw, the casting out in 7 through 9. Except it's not. (laughs) There is roughly a 4,000 year gap between verse 9 and verse 10. How do we know that? Okay. He did seem like, which we'll come back. I'll I'll just say it right now. Let's be clear about this. When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, what does lightning, what is lightning a metaphor? What is it? That's a great answer. The only problem is it's wrong. But I'm sincere. Everybody thinks that. I used to think that. But that's not. Thank you. There was someone else who comes from heaven that Jesus says comes like lightning. Who is it? Him. (laughs) And he says, as the lightning shines from the east and the west, and so it's visible to everyone. That's what lightning means. When Satan falls like lightning, I mean, first of all, if quick, he's saying this 4,000 years later, and he still isn't in the grave yet. That's the slowest quick. (laughs) But visibility is the key. He's wanting everyone to see. Because, friends, think about this. Christ could have seen, when Christ looks at you, he doesn't just see to you, he sees through you. 
right? So in the courts of heaven, and we're going to get to this when we get to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. These are important points to remember for those passages. When Christ sees his creatures, he sees their inward character, not just their outward affect. He doesn't just see the face they put on and the whatever and the words they say. He sees their motive. Now, let's say that all the inhabitants of heaven were gathered together while Satan was doing his deceitful, baleful work. The eye of God sweeps the congregation, right? And, every, and let's say that they're singing the doxology. Praise God from whom? It's just huge. And they have all these parts, and it's just gorgeous. And he sees that on the outside, everyone is happy and beautiful and splendid. And on the inside, their character matches. Their sincerity, transparency, honesty, humility, it's beautiful. And everyone's the same. Thousands upon 10,000 times 10,000 until he gets to Lucifer, the song leader himself. Question for you. Does everyone respect Lucifer? Absolutely. There's good evidence to think he was the very first created being. He's the most exalted of all the angel hosts. He was the leader of them, second only to Christ himself, who, of course, that's a big jump from creation to creator, right? But he was the first step down that ladder. You see what I'm saying? Now, in, right, it's easy to sow seed when the ground is tilled so well. Now, let's say that in that moment, Christ sees in his heart, which he can, of course, that there's rebellion and iniquity. And we all know that the wages of sin is what? Death. So Christ says, all right, everybody, stop, 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 stop. Lucifer, I need you to step forward. And of course, Lucifer's protect. Is it possible, by the way, that you can have something on the inside of you that don't show on the outside of you? Happens all the time. People come walking down the hall that you don't necessarily look forward to seeing, but you don't say, like, ugh, right? What do you say? Like, oh, good, good morning, how are you? Good to see you, sister, brother, good. Mm -hmm. Now, we should fix that, friends. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. But it's possible that you can be something on the outside that you're not showing on, on the inside that you're not showing on the outside, right? So he comes, let's say that he comes forward, and, and I, I know this is a kind of a long analogy, but it's very helpful. I would use this in the study. Brings him forward. I'm sorry, I've seen in your heart. Iniquity has come from within. I really should, you should do this story when you're in Ezekiel or Isaiah. Because it said, because you've said in your heart, I will say, right? How do you know what's in his heart? Only God can see, right? He pulls him forward, and in front of all the onlooking hosts of heaven, the sinless intelligences filling that world, God reaches forth his hand, withdraws the breath of life, from that created being. And the lifeless body of Lucifer is laying there before the throne of God. Now, if in that moment God said, all right, where were we? Let's sing it again. Praise God from whom all. Do you think the angels, first of all, are the angels still loyal to God? Yes. Do they have questions for God? Oh, yes. Is it okay to have questions for God? Absolutely. Now, when they ask those questions, like, it would probably go to something like, ah, uh, I mean, mm, mm, I mean, I don't know, who's to, I don't want to judge, but how's the, and God's like, what's, what's wrong? Oh, you mean the dead, the dead angel? Yeah. Oh, and what if his answer was, don't worry, trust me, let's keep singing, right? Would they sing? Yeah. You better believe it. <laughs> Here's my point. God can kill the rebel, but it wouldn't end the rebellion. 
right? Once sin, sin began, it had to grow so others could see it, so that when God executes justice, not if, when God executes justice, every eye will see. Because, friends, there's not going to be a greater controversy. He's going to finish it once and for all. Okay? It's not in this study, but you can tuck this little text away. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Nahum 1 and verse 9. Um, anybody know that one? That's right. What do you conspire against the Lord? Affliction shall not rise up a second time. How can he make that promise? Is he going to take away our freedom to choose? No. After redemption, history is done. Do you think we could sin if we chose shows? Of course. How can he guarantee that we won't? We've seen both sides of the issue. Top to bottom, every question has been answered. And every knee has chosen. Okay. So we go on. Chapter two, uh, verse 10, this is when, this is Christ at Calvary. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself said so. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I would do that with them, by the way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Just help them out. Don't, don't have any problem saying go to the left, go to the right. There's 66 books in the Bible, and I bet most people in this room couldn't recite them. Those unbelievers out there don't have a clue. Help them. Take your time. John chapter 12. Got a race. Got a race. John chapter 12. Verse 31. Now, Jesus says, as he sees his ministry drawing to a close, he knows his time is approaching because Jesus lived his life on a prophetic time schedule. Now is the judgment of this world. By the way, this is a great text to help unfold the evangelical argument that the judgment was done at the cross. Because they just say, now's the judgment of the world, and that's it. But he tells us what that means. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be, what's the next two words? Cast out. Wait a minute, I thought he was cast out 4,000. He was cast out of heaven. Physically removed from the courts of heaven, right? But when Christ died at Calvary, he was cast out from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Sympathies of the angels, right? Oh, and there's a whole study you could do on that. You can go to the book of Job. He shows up amongst the sons of God, right? Why are they even listening? You, know, you can watch the argument between God and Christ, I mean Christ and Satan back and forth, but the sons of God let him in the room and they don't say a word. They're loyal to God, but they're like, let's hear him out. But when they see what happened at Calvary, by the way, how do we know this is specifically speaking about Calvary? Just keep reading. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. The all people includes the heavenly beings as well. They are drawn to Christ. Now, they were never disloyal. They never rebelled. They never sinned against him. But now their questions are answered. The question specifically is, why should Lucifer die? The first two steps culminate with the answering of this question, why should Lucifer die? when Christ demonstrated the love of God, the selfless, I would give myself for any one of my creatures. Where, as opposed, Satan would take anything, including the life of God, if it were possible. Which he did. The angels saw, for the very first time, two important things. Number one, they saw who Satan really was. That he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Jesus had said that. 
By the way, how can you be a murderer if you never actually killed anybody? Does Jesus answer that riddle for us? Sure. It's what was going on in the hearts. Right? There was violence within. There was jealousy and envy. There was hatred within. And now he unleashes it on the sinless Son of God. And the angel hosts say, though we were friends with him, we knew him, we respected him. Now we see why he has to be stopped. He's got to die. Okay? Now, number three brings up a whole new set of questions. And I would ask them that simply. You know, their question now is, why should Satan die? And they see the answer. Christ to Calvary. You kill God. That's game over. You don't get to come back to the courtroom anymore and talk on like you did in the book of Job. We're just not listening. God doesn't have to build a wall or have a flaming sword. Just nobody up there is listening anymore. They're done with him. Now, the real question we have to face is, if Christ, as he said, defeated Satan at the cross, the ruler of the world has been cast out, the heavenly people who have seen the thing are all on side now. Why, 2,000 years later, are we still here? And here's the simple answer. Because it's not the plan of destruction. It's the plan of salvation. It's the plan of redemption. Christ, if all he wanted to accomplish in the great controversy was killing Satan and sinners, he could have done so justifiably at the cross of Calvary. All God would have to do, six seconds after Jesus died, God the Father could have looked around and said, are we good? They'd have been like, yep, boom, that's it. But that's not what happened. Because Christ came to do more than merely defeat Satan, he came to redeem sinners. It's a powerful thought. By the way, it's right there in Revelation 12. Let's go back to it. Step three. Notice it says here, again in verse 10, when it said, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the power of our God and the kingdom of, our Christ hath, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren... Right, this is the brethren on earth, right? Who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Then look at verse 11. And they, who are they in this context? From what we just saw in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, they is the brethren down here on the earth, right? Us. And they, what's the next word? Overcame him. By what agency? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. They now have the selfless character of Christ. And now, not only have the heavenly host rejected Satan, now the redeemed have now rejected Satan. Which this is a great point to make an appeal. Friends, is there any sympathy in your heart for Satan today? Are we loyal to God yet still, well, let's just hear him out and see where this goes. It's <laughs> a good question. Redeemed reject Satan. Could you move this aside? This end. No, no, this end. Oh, move it out that way. Move it back and it's getting harder to see. Perfect. Well, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it certainly helps. <laughs> okay. So now Satan was physically cast out of heaven, but he couldn't kill him yet. Christ at Calvary, he could kill him, but it doesn't help the redeem, remember? He wants to save the wheat. So he allows it a little bit longer. Redeemed reject Jesus. I mean, reject Satan. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Redeemed reject Satan. They have no more sympathy in their hearts. They've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. They too have the victory. Which is the great question because I love bringing this out. This is a great text for this. John 14, uh, 1 through, I think it's about 3. You probably know it by heart. 
It's the beautiful assurance that Jesus gives to the believers. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. Now notice verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. Jesus said that 2,000 years ago, and he said it in the present tense, before he returned to heaven. Why were there vacancies in heaven? Was there a great exodus from heaven? Was there a war in heaven where people were cast out? Yes. He's like, there's plenty of room for you up there. Sister White, which I wouldn't bring this out in the statement because we want to prove everything from the Bible, says unambiguously that God intends that the vacancies filled by the fall would be made up by the redeemed. So we would fill those vacancies. Okay? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for whom? For you, he says to us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Beautiful promise. But let's think about it from the angel's perspective. Is that really good news? Sure, we think it's great. Woohoo! <laughs> the promise of heaven. Gabriel's like, slow down. We fought a war over this. We lost friends because of this. It took 4,000 years to convince us that Lucifer should die. Friends, they're not looking for evidence that Lucifer should die. They're looking for any evidence that we should be allowed to live. And what if God's only answer is, oh, that, don't worry, trust me. <laughs> Friends, in the same way they needed to see the evidence for why Satan should die, they now need to see the evidence why any of his followers should be allowed to live. Now the issue is not the destruction of the wicked, it's the redemption of the wicked, is the question. Let me give you a text for this. It's another one. Put it right there with John 14. Now I know that we've gone pretty much far off of our study guide. I don't mean to do that, but I want you to see this big picture and then use the study guide to build that. Does that make sense? Okay. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. That's why I finish up very quickly, I promise. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul is talking about his... Um, Paul is talking about his job description, of course, which is a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. But then he adds in verse 9, you could probably add verses 8. I mean, verse 8 is where the sentence starts, but it's a Pauline sentence. It probably started back in 1 Corinthians. Um, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, he adds in verse 9, to make all what? See what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. The key is in verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, his plan, his will, his wisdom, might be made known, and I want you to watch this very carefully. Look in your Bibles. He wants to make his wisdom known to whom? Not the church. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. By what agency? By the church. He wants his wisdom to be seen in us. It's right there in the Bible, friends. He wants his wisdom. Now, he could just say, trust me. And they are loyal, but they still have questions. The great controversy exists to answer every question so that when it's done, it's done for good. It's never coming back. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of, the, of God may be known by the church to the... Now, if God lives in heaven, and these principalities and powers, they're also in heavenly places, wouldn't the simplest way to teach them something just to turn to them and explain it? But just saying it 
A proclamation, even of the truth, is sometimes not enough. You need to see a demonstration of the truth. So God says, look what I can do. It's like, I'm not just calling them good on paper. He's like, I'm going to make them good in person. Friends, salvation is not a transaction to get you into heaven. It is a transformation to fit you into heaven. Yes, sir. I'm trying to wrap my mind around that. Okay. So how does, it, how does Christ settle it in our minds to lose all sympathy for Satan? That's the miracle conversion. That's the new life. That's what it is. That's what salvation is all about. It's not just accepting a ticket to get it. He's going to work it out in you. It's going to take time, and they're watching. It's a beautiful thing. But it's, it's the mystery. That's what Paul says, the mystery. But they need to see the mystery lived out. It's just like he's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes, you know, from, from our, our lost loved ones. It's kind of, you know. Like in the same way, how is he going to do that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's, it's kind of the same thing. He wipes okay. away their sympathy. He's mm. going to wipe away our sympathy. There is a cleansing that comes from Christ that can change who you are and the way you think, and the sympathies that you have. It can. I, it, even more analogous. How can God make, you know, lobster not taste good? <laughs> he can give you a new palate. He can. Yes, sister. Yeah. And they're going to be, well, and we can't, we'll get to this in step four. Let's just go, because we have to go, go, I have to get running. Step four, trust me, that's a four. I mean, I'm 6'2", and this is about three foot two. <laughs> it's hard. Have some sympathy. <laughs> Let's go back to Revelation 12. I want to make sure you see the four steps, because this will set up your millennium study. This will set up the second coming study. This will set up the investigation judgment study. All of those studies are predicated on the proper framework of the great controversy. Are you seeing what I'm saying? For instance, I'll just give you this little preview of the millennium study. I promise it'll just take a second, Mark. Don't look at me with that scowl. <laughs> Even as Seventh Adventists, I bet many people have never thought through the purpose of the millennium. Well, you know it's true, but why? If all the wicked are going to be destroyed with those who are alive when he comes and are destroyed and join the rest of the wicked in the grave, all the wicked are now collected in the grave and they're dead. And they're not seeing, they're not hearing, they're not feeling, have nothing to do with anything under the sun. We know the truth about the state of the dead. And if the righteous are taken to heaven from their graves or translated without tasting death and they're gathered together with Christ, the separation has occurred. Christ has already determined who is saved and lost. He's already separated the sheep from the goats. The wicked are in the graves. The righteous are with Christ. Why does Satan keep living? <laughs> Come on, now. Let, let me answer the question. <laughs> I set it up so I can answer it. Here we go. <laughs> but listen here. You've got to wrestle with this question if you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Why would Christ destroy all the wicked only to raise them up a thousand years later and kill them again? What's the purpose? Okay, it demonstrates rebellion in your heart. That's not bad. But I think there's an even better reason, even though it's a good one. Why, why they got lost? Thank you. They need a chance to see. Even the wicked God treats fairly. He cares what his creatures think. And if in the, throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, someone couldn't ever say, you know, you could have done a little more. You could have been a little more fair. You could have showed at least. No. Mm-mm. God is a God who takes his time and gets things right. Why hasn't he ended evil? Because it's not time yet, but there is a time coming. People got to understand this. He didn't start it, but I tell you what, he's going to end it right. Revelation chapter 12, we've got to finish this out. 
After we read in verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to the death, they become like Christ, right? Therefore, now that there's been a distinction, now the people have chosen, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a what? Short time. Now he knows. Once those decisions are made, now it's just on a crash course to the end. And that short time will conclude in the millennium. And once you set that framework up of the very beginning of the controversy all the way through. By the way, just to add credibility to my statement that lightning represents visibility, there's a little obscure source called the desire of ages. <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head, hey, look at that, that's what I'm talking about, brother. There's an Adventist indeed. In the Desire of Ages, look up her commentary about Saul, Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you notice she outlines four distinct steps. When he was first cast out, looked forward to the scenes of his suffering when he would be cast out on the cross, looked forward to the great final day when he would be eliminated altogether, and in the between time, he wanted his victory to become the redeemed's. Four steps right there. Same thing you see in Revelation 12. It's a beautiful thing. So what I would do as we conclude with this study is with this framework in your mind of the big picture of the great controversy, start with those rhetorical questions. Why didn't God just kill him right then and there? Well, because they didn't see into his heart. And you use Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 to talk about what was in his heart and how it repeatedly says, he said in his heart, violence was within, but it wasn't on the outside. You know, he even dresses up like a loyal, and he can persuade, on the outside he looks good, right? And compare that to Matthew 13. That's why he didn't come in, because you would get it wrong. Then you go to uh, Revelation 12, 10, and you show John chapter 12, verse 31, and I, if I am lifted up, will draw all people's right. That's he'll be cast out. Second casting out. Third, basically a third casting out. Now the redeemed overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And they no longer have sympathy for Satan. And thus he knows that his time is short. There is an end coming. And that's when you get into the investigative judgment right here the second coming of Jesus and the final destruction of the millennium, which predicates a truth about the state of the dead. So inside of this great controversy, you've got to have the truth about the state of the dead. You've got to understand the investigative judgment. You've got to know the second coming, and you've got to know the millennium. And if you get that picture with those elements in there, you're about six minutes away from having a new Seventh-day Adventist on your hands. I'm telling you. Then when you look at the Antichrist, no wonder there's a war. He's battling Jesus Christ, and he has to come up with a diversion. He's a deceiver, right? And that's why there's a counterfeit worship, because that's what he wants us to be exalted, selfishness. That's why worship is the big end time. Why is he picking on the Sabbath? Why is it? Because it's the one that actively tells us how to worship the way God said. Satan hates that one. It makes him the creator. You know? Makes his enemy, Jesus, the creator. That's all I said. All of it makes sense inside the framework of the great controversy. Now, I'm sorry I didn't give you a step-by-step -step guide to this per se. But the texts that are in there are supporting pillars of this picture. Are we all on the same page? I just wrote it all down, man. <laughs> Clear as the, as the driven snow. I don't understand. Uh, now, we can, um, I'm sure we can arrange to have some notes given. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I, yeah, I can even give you the, because I, when I do a presentation, I go, Daniel 2, signs of the time, and then we spend a couple of nights. You were there, right? We spend some time on the great controversy. And uh, well, uh, 
Yes, ma'am, I'll move. <laughs> She's like, I don't know how to say this nice, but could you get, you know, out of the way? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, but we, I can give you the study notes to go with it. I'll even give you the study guides that I use in Unlock Revelation for this particular study. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll let Mark be in charge of getting those electronically to you. I don't have physical copies to give you or something like that. Okay. To give us everything you've ever said. <laughs> I'm telling you, you guys are in a, like a condensed, like the condensed up. This is the tightest, smallest little class, and, and we're just, it's, it's from a fire hose. So it'll be fun to see you guys do these studies this afternoon. I'm excited. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Would you still put it in order of number three? Because you said. Sure. No, and there's no, I, I like the fact that it's that close to the front. Uh, sometimes it's just like, oh, yes, and there was war in heaven. It's kind of like seen as parsley on the plate when this is really the plate itself where everything else goes on to. And so it, they, they need to see the reliability of Scripture from Daniel 2. Because there are a lot of people, the Bible is just uh, old wives' tales and fairy tales. No, it's objectively true. Then they need to see not only is his coming um, uh, real, but it's near. You look at the signs of the times, right? Then you look at, let's pan out and see where did it all come from, and you set the stage for everything else that's coming after. Yes, ma'am. How can you give this lesson justice, trying to do it in 45 minutes? You may not. For me personally, I would take not more time in the lesson, but I would take more lessons. I, I would... The fastest I've been, I mean, we did all four steps here, but it, it was predicated on you guys having a lot of background. You had to be with me to get there, right? Yeah. They're not there yet. Yeah. So I would take my time, and I'd start with those basic principles. Start with, like, the parable. That's why the parable is so important. It breaks it down to elementary. And you just walk through that parable. Then when we come back together, we're just going to walk through the destruction of Satan, right? We're going to see this. And it might take us a couple studies, maybe two or three. Okay. Nice. I would be fine with it. But I tell you, if they're hooked into the story, they're going to come back for more. They are. I forget who's next. You and then you. That's okay. I'm just saying, Desire of Ages reference page 490. Oh, thank you. Desire of Ages 490 for the fall like lightning. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, sir. From what you brought out, I'm trying to wrap my head around Bible studies now. I'm telling you, brother, when you come back, and this is why, by the way, you should attend your prophecy meetings at your local church, even if you don't have someone to bring or whatever, which you should have someone to bring, but even if you don't, it's good training for you for how to give studies, and it's good. I learn something new every time I hear someone preach these things. There is depth to the Word of God that we seldom appreciate. I'm tired of once learned, always learned Adventism. Yeah. Keep learning. Yes, ma'am. Just audio verse. Download the app if you have a smartphone or a yeah. computer. They're excellent stuff. Yeah, audio verse app. The series that we did here, that's why I recommend the Restoration series from Loma Linda. It was just in February they gave it. It's on audio verse. You can get that. And there's a whole lot of, there's thousands of other sermons too, yeah. My own series is on there, plus thousands of others are. I'm saying in the Restoration series. That's the Restoration series is me okay. doing, uh, doing the great controversy. I do five nights in a row of this. You know, we take five sermons for this, you know, instead of just. I'm telling you, yes. Dude, I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you that all I do is night one. Step one, night two, step two, just walk through it, and then night five, we apply it and make an appeal. You see what I'm saying? Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's it. Okay, I have just ruined Mark Howard's day, and so I feel <laughs> terrible about that. He's not even in the room. To, he's just, he quit. He just left. Exactly. I saw a paper flying, and he's just a little cloud of smoke. That's all right. Say it again. 
Oh, no, ma'am. No, no, that would be very bad. <laughs> but um, I appreciate your time and patience. I think we should take a break. Can we close with a word of prayer and then give you five minutes and then come back in? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for being a God who takes your time to get things right. Thank you for being a God who communicates that to us and for giving us the responsibility, the privilege, and the joy of sharing that truth with others. Please, Lord, help us to understand the great controversy for ourselves and help us to share it efficiently and effectively with those who do not know. Lord, we want to see people saved, so please use us for your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.